Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Internet Radio. Today is Friday, May 10th, 2019. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Since the response to the first part of the series, just last week, was quite encouraging, I will present the second part here. Just a week later, and a lot sooner than I had originally planned, this is Hitler Christian, part two. This is all I am planning on presenting from this series from the pages of Mein Kampf. If there was a third part of the series, which I really don't see a need for, because if you don't get it by now, you'll never get it. But if there is a third part, it'll be based on Hitler's actual speeches from 1932 through the end of the war. Our intention here is to demonstrate conclusively that Adolf Hitler was a Christian, and not merely in word, but in substance. And that is the sort of Christianity that the world simply does not understand. If National Socialism was founded on the principle of a sacrifice of one's own self-interest for the benefit of one's people or community, and with programs for the protection and care for the elderly, for women and children, and with the same moral values that are outlined in Christian scriptures and with concern for the property rights of all classes, beginning with the poorest and humblest, rather than only for the wealthy and strong, and with concern for the racial purity of the people, as the Christian scriptures certainly forbid any mixing of the races, then National Socialism is Christian. Since none of these ideals are openly espoused in the literature of pagans, atheists, or Jews. Furthermore, if Adolf Hitler consistently referred to the Christian scriptures in order to defend and illustrate his positions on race and people, even in spite of the fact that the churches themselves ignore those scriptures or obscure and pervert them with fairy tales, then Adolf Hitler was indeed a Christian, and he was a better Christian than the officials of those churches. That is what he did. That is what National Socialism later put into its party platform and enacted into its laws. Therefore, what he did and said in relation to blood and race, using the allegories and illustrations which are found in the Christian scriptures, must have also been sincere. Such allegories and examples, such moral ethics and laws cannot be found in the literature of pagans or atheists, and they are only perverted by Jews. This idea that Hitler was not a Christian, but was instead 
an atheist or pagan, is actually quite insidious. Today, the Jews themselves assert their own definition of what Christianity is. Or what they claim that it is supposed to be. And by that method, the Jews distract Christians, leading them around by the nose, which with some imagined authority over a faith which they themselves have always rejected, and which Christ had said they were expected to reject because they never had an authentic stake in it in the first place. Jesus never intended to convert the Jews at his first advent. But he has indeed promised to convert them all to ashes at his second advent, which is the Holocaust that they themselves know they have coming. Adolf Hitler's Christianity was certain. However, it is not the Christianity of the churches, which have ruined themselves with universalism and materialism. The churches for centuries have been at the point where they themselves do not espouse or even recognize true Christianity. The only Christians who can generally understand this aspect of Hitler and National Socialism are identity Christians. If Hitler's Christian profession simply mimicked that of the churches, then we can imagine that Hitler was a superficial Christian and that he may have only been pretending. But on the other hand, if Hitler's Christian profession was well-grounded in biblical laws and principles, then we must admit that Hitler was a true Christian who sought to understand and follow Christ in spite of the dogmas of the churches. This, this is the Christianity of Adolf Hitler and National Socialism, in word and deed, not in lip service or kissing some pope's ass, or merely in superficial and empty ceremony. But Hitler was not an identity Christian. While his conclusions on these several important concepts and issues are correct, he arrived at them through his own reading of scripture, but he did not have the necessary background in ancient history, language, archaeology, or scripture to discover Christian identity truths. Concerning the origins of our European nations, or the fact that the biblical heritage is actually theirs and does not belong to the Jews. So while he quoted from and alluded to Genesis quite frequently, he incorrectly viewed all of the other books of the Old Testament as Jewish, esteeming only the teachings of Christ himself. Instinctively, Hitler knew that Christ could not have been a Jew, and he was right. But he did not know 
accurately how it was that Christ was not a Jew, something which at least most identity Christians today should be able to easily explain. Another important precept, which only identity Christians seem to understand, is that Jews must be rejected, first on the simple basis that they deny Christ, and then on the basis of their race. In regard to Christ, we read in the second epistle of John, for example, that each who going forth, remember this was written towards the latter part of the first century, even towards the end, each who going forth and not abiding in the teaching of Christ has not God. He abiding in the teaching. He also has the Father and the Son. If one comes to you and does not bear this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not speak to welcome him. For he speaking to welcome him takes a share in his evil works. If you make a Jew comfortable, you are guilty of the sins of the devil. Christ taught that men should love their brethren, make sacrifices for their benefit, abstain from sin and immorality, and care for the elderly, women, and children. And those were the very precepts, precepts upon which National Socialism was founded. In regard to the race of the Jews, Christ warned in the Revelation that I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. In Romans chapter 9, Paul called the Edomites in Judea vessels of destruction, and they were not properly Judean. They were not properly Jews, as the word is used in that first century context. The word Jew comes from is a corruption of Judea. And in chapter 16, Paul described them as a collective Satan who was about to be crushed under the feet of the Romans. The so-called Jews, who claim to be of Judah and are not, are actually descended from the accursed enemies of Christ, the ancient Canaanites and Edomites of antiquity. Identity Christians can explain how this may be with every necessary detail from Scripture and history, but the churches ignore the issue and have traditionally upheld the lies of the Jews. Like the figures of the New Testament, National Socialism also recognized the fact that the Jews were a corrupt and decadent race, that they could never properly be either Christians or Germans, so that they had to be denied equal citizenship in Germany. Adolf Hitler learned those things as a Christian, as a true Christian, and not as a church boy or a pagan. Traditionally, the Jews had thrived in pagan environments. And because Christianity exposed the evils of the Jews, 
The Jews have always made war against Christianity until it was corrupted just a few centuries ago. The Roman Catholic Church, for over a thousand years, had kept Europe virtually free of the plagues of the Jew, from the usury and the vice that the Jew has spread abroad wherever he is found. So we read in point four of the 25-point program of the National Socialist German Workers' Party. Only a member of the race can be a citizen. A member of the race can only be one who is of German blood without consideration of creed. Consequently, no Jew can be a member of the race. And then in point 24, we demand freedom of religion for all religious denominations within the state so long as they do not endanger its existence or oppose the moral senses of the Germanic race. The party, as such, advocates the standpoint of a positive Christianity without binding itself confessionally to any one denomination. It combats the Jewish materialistic spirit within and around us, and is convinced that a lasting recovery of our nation can only succeed from within on the framework common utility precedes individual utility. In other words, what is good for the German people is more important than what is good for any particular individual. The Jew is the proponent and foremost perpetuator of individualism, which leads to a nation full of units divided against themselves. Of course, the National Socialists, following Hitler, had generally believed that Jesus is not a Jew, and we can testify that they were certainly correct. Positive Christianity is one which is actually put into policy and practice and not merely church attendance for the observance of vain rituals. Now we shall offer a survey of passages in Mein Kampf which demonstrate that Adolf Hitler's notions of nation, blood, and race and the origin and destiny of the Aryan man were derived from the Christian scriptures. We will also discuss other aspects of Hitler's attitudes and language which demonstrate the Christian nature of his thoughts and deeds. While we have already offered some of these passages as proofs in part one of the series, here we shall discuss them from a somewhat different perspective while seeking to challenge any so-called pagans or atheists who might offer a conflicting perspective. In the opening chapter of Mein Kampf, where Hitler is discussing his childhood, we see that he was raised a Christian, a Catholic Christian, and that his father was raised a Christian. In my free time, I practiced singing in the choir of the monastery church at Lombok, and thus it happened 
that I was placed in a very favorable position to be emotionally impressed again and again by the magnificent splendor of ecclesiastical ceremony. What could be more natural for me than to look upon the abbot as representing the highest human ideal worth striving for? Just as the position of the humble village priest had appeared to my father in his own boyhood days. While Hitler was imbued with an affection for Catholic ceremony, which the Lutherans had also retained to a great degree in their own liturgy, his reflections on nation, blood, and race do not come from any Catholic or Lutheran dogma. Rather, they come from an actual understanding of Christian scripture, something of which such dogma is often ignorant. So Adolf Hitler described the Aryan man alone as the pinnacle of the creation of God. We, as identity Christians, would also assert that the descriptions in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and five are stating that same thing. The word Adam means to be ruddy, and only white nations are found to be descended from the Adamic man of Genesis chapter 10, or at least nations which were at one time white. Although many of them are mixed now, Christian identity explains and proves this position, but it is not, and it cannot be taught by the universal churches, since then they would have to explain just where it was that their black, brown, red, and yellow pew-sitters may have originated or just what are the consequences of their own peculiar ethnic histories in relation to Christ. As we like to sometimes sing, red, yellow, black, and brown, lake of fire, throw them down. So in the closing sentence of Volume 1, Chapter 2 of Mein Kampf, Hitler stated, and so, I believe today that my conduct is in accordance with the will of the Almighty Creator. In standing guard against the Jew, I am defending the handiwork of the Lord. Here it is evident that Hitler understood that the Jew was naturally contrary and hostile to the handiwork of the Lord. This, too, is what we identity Christians believe. And Paul of Tarsus described the Jews in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 as those who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and banished us and are not pleasing to God and contrary to all men. This verse alone reflects how deep and how long-running treachery against the word of God has been 
The King James Version of that passage, as well as many other modern translations, contain an interpolation which causes the text to be read, in part, and their own prophets. However, that is not true. And the interpolation, the words, are not found in any of the oldest Greek manuscripts. It had first appeared in the text of the charlatan Marcion, Paul's critic, as he was quoted by some of the early so-called church fathers, and then apparently appeared in a 6th century revision of the Codex Claromontanus, but it is not in any of the other early New Testament manuscripts. They killed the prophets. They certainly didn't kill their own prophets. As Christ told them, you don't believe me because you are not my sheep. They weren't his people in the first place. Later, in Volume 2, Chapter 1 of Mein Kampf, Hitler once again portrayed the Aryan man as the pinnacle of the creation of God. Maybe I should say epitome. Just as the Bible portrays the ruddy Adamic man, where he wrote to undermine the existence of human culture by exterminating its founders and custodians would be an execrable, an execrable crime in the eyes of those who believe that the folk idea lies at the basis of human existence. Whoever would dare to raise a profane hand against that highest image of God among his creatures would sin against the bountiful creator of this marvel and would collaborate in the expulsion from paradise. Anyone who would raise a hand against the white man takes the side of Satan. This is also the Christian identity interpretation of scripture, and we support it with studies in language, history, and archaeology. Hitler must have gotten these biblical teachings from the Christian scriptures as they are not found in paganism and they are not found in church doctrines and dogmas. Here, it is also fully evident that Hitler had perceived the fall of the biblical Adam to have resulted from an episode of race mixing. That is how identity Christians interpret Genesis chapters 3 and 6. While the churches deny that correct interpretation, but more importantly, Hitler perceived the plight of man and its causes through the lens of those Christian scriptures, in spite of the lies the churches have taught, and in spite of the literature of the pagans, where no such descriptions are even found. Something else that we discussed briefly in part one of this series 
is the famous so-called 14 words, allegedly coined by David Lane, which we read, we must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children. While David Lane gets credit for writing this, he did not coin this phrase, but rather he only modified something which Adolf Hitler had said in Volume 1, Chapter 8 of Mein Kampf. While we cannot conjecture Lane's motivation, he did us no favors by removing the statement from its original Christian context. Hitler had written that what we have to fight for is the necessary security for the existence and increase of our race and people. The subsistence of its children and the maintenance of our racial stock unmixed, the freedom and independence of the fatherland so that our people may be enabled to fulfill the mission assigned to it by the creator regarding the Aryan or Adamic race, the mission assigned to it by the creator can only be that which was assigned to the Adamic race as it is found in Genesis chapter 1, which was a mandate to reproduce and to assert dominion over the rest of the creation. That is how identity Christians perceive the Genesis account. As God had also said to that same Adamic man in Genesis, be fruitful and multiply and replenish or fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. In an attack on ecclesiastical celibacy, in Volume 2, Chapter 2 of Mein Kampf, Hitler wrote, And further, they ought to be brought to realize that it is their bounden duty to give to the Almighty Creator beings such as He Himself made to His own image. For that same reason, he wrote in Volume 1, Chapter 10 of Mein Kampf, that the right to personal freedom comes second in importance to the duty of maintaining the race. So once again, the biblical Christianity of Hitler is evident in direct contrast to the dogmas of the churches. But where in pagan literature are such concepts even found? If Hitler were a pagan, why didn't he use citations from pagan literature to underline his points, to give them the authority of tradition? The plain truth is that Hitler was a Christian, and he was invoking truly Christian ideals which are often contrary to both Catholics and pagans alike. For the Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, or Lutheran churches, 
Regarding marriage, there is no prohibition against miscegenation or race mixing, so long as both parties are professedly Christian. But in regard to this, identity Christians strongly disagree with the destructive universalist doctrines of the organized churches. The egalitarianism, which we see to be an error. In many other presentations here at Christogenia, we have made long exhibitions from scripture as proofs of our assertions that race mixing is indeed a cardinal sin. My October 2016 sermon, Scatters and Gathers, which I will link here, is one example. Here I shall only state that the Apostle Jude defined fornication as the pursuit of different flesh, the going after of strange flesh, and related it to the race-mixing events of Genesis chapters 3 and 6. While Paul of Tarsus warned the Corinthians not to commit fornication, and he referred to the race-mixing event of Numbers chapter 25 to illustrate what sort of fornication he was warning against. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus Christ himself warned that he will destroy the children of such fornicators with death. We do not see any references such as these or any such examples where race mixing is considered sinful and destructive in any of the pagan literature. While apparently writing in regard to what we may call Western civilization, Adolf Hitler wrote the following in Volume 1, Chapter 10 of Mein Kampf, which was subtitled, Why the Second Reich Collapsed. One has good grounds to be suspicious in regard to any new idea or any doctrine or philosophy, any political or economic movement, which tries to deny everything that the past has produced or to present it as inferior and worthless, which is what the Jews do to Western civilization today. Any renovation which is really beneficial to human progress will always have to begin its constructive work at the level where the last stones of the structure have been laid. It need not blush to utilize those truths which have already been established for all human culture, as well as man himself, is only the result of one long line of development where each generation has contributed but one stone to the building of the whole structure. The meaning and purpose of revolutions cannot be to tear down the whole building but to take away what has not been well fitted into or is unsuitable and to rebuild the free space thus caused, after which the main construction of the building will be carried on. As Christ said, you don't put an old patch on new cloth. You have to remove new patches from old cloth or they will tear.
Actually, the only revolutions which had been proactively destructive of European Christian culture and ideals were the Jewish revolutions, such as the French and the Bolshevik. But throughout Mein Kampf, Hitler elucidated the fact that European civilization had been built upon Christian morals and ideals, which he consistently promoted maintaining. So he certainly was not talking about disposing of Christianity. Rather, he was describing the necessity of disposing of its plagues. Even the language he had used in this passage is also found in the Christian scriptures. For instance, the Apostle Peter used the analogy of men as stones coming together to form a house, which may then be used for the purposes of God. Christ himself had said in Matthew chapter 7, Therefore, whosoever hears these things of mine and does them, I will liken him unto a wise man who built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. Later, Paul of Tarsus wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that according to the grace of God which is given unto me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds thereon. But let every man take heed how he builds thereupon. Upon this foundation, now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, or precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Here Hitler was describing the need to rid Germany of the wood, hay, and stubble while keeping the gold, silver, and precious stones. The ultimate proof that Hitler did indeed have Christian civilization in mind, where he had spoken here of preserving the solid foundations of progress and culture, is found in Volume 1 in Chapter 11 of Mein Kampf, which is subtitled Race and People. The religious teaching of the Jews is principally a collection of instructions for maintaining the Jewish blood pure, and I would dispute somewhat with that, and for regulating intercourse between Jews and the rest of the world. That is to say, their relation with non-Jews. But the Jewish religious teaching is not concerned with moral problems. It is rather concerned with economic problems, and very petty ones at that. In regard to the moral value of the religious teaching of the Jews, there exists and always have existed quite exhaustive studies, not from the Jewish side, for whatever the Jews have written on this question has naturally been, always been, of a tendentious character. These quite exhaustive studies which show up the kind of religion that the Jews have in a light that makes it look very uncanny to the Aryan mind. The Jew himself is the best example of the kind of product which this religious training evolves. His life is of this world only, 
and his mentality is as foreign to the true spirit of Christianity as his character was foreign to the great founder of this new creed 2,000 years ago. And the founder of Christianity made no secret indeed of his estimation of the Jewish people. When he found it necessary, he drove those enemies of the human race out of the temple of God. Because then, as always, they used religion as a means of advancing their commercial interests. But at that time, Christ was nailed to the cross for his attitude towards the Jews. Whereas our modern Christians enter into party politics and when elections are being held, they debase themselves to beg for Jewish votes. They even enter into political intrigues with the atheistic Jewish parties against the interests of their own Christian nation. Not once did Hitler ever mention why Odin may have hung on a tree or how that may have benefited the German people in any way. While Christ hung for the sake of his people, Odin hung only for his own personal gain. Abraham sacrificed Isaac in an act of in an act of selfless devotion and had nothing to gain if he lost his son. But as it is described in the Yingling Sangha, Odin demanded that the Swedish king On, or Ain, the son of Jorind, sacrifice nine of his sons, and for each of them he would live and rule for ten additional years, an act of immeasurable self-devotion, greed, and cruelty. So who did Hitler follow in word and practice, Odin or Christ? If Hitler had followed Odin, he would have sacrificed his own people so that he could continue to rule. Instead, he died along with them while opposing the devil. The Jew, just as Christ had done. Many pundits take certain of Hitler's remarks out of context and claim that he was only a believer in the laws of nature as if nature even has a single consistent law. If nature had a single consistent law, niggers might be human. The truth is that creatures such as lions and horses, dogs and cats, or niggers and white men frequently act in contrary ways under similar circumstances, and therefore no inherent universal morality can possibly be ascribed to nature alone, because all of the elements of creation do not share the same morality. Speaking on miscegenation, or the sin against blood and race, Hitler wrote the following. In volume, volume 1, chapter 11 of Mein Kampf, 
subtitled Race and People. But in North America, the Teutonic element, which has kept its racial stock pure and did not mix it with any other racial stock, has come to dominate the American continent and will remain master of it as long as that element does not fall a victim to the habit of adulterating its blood. In short, the results of miscegenation are always the following. A. The level of the superior race becomes lowered. White men start acting like niggers. And B. Physical and mental degeneration sets in. And we start listening to hip-hop thus leading slowly but steadily towards a progressive drying up of the vital sap. The act which brings about such a development is a sin against the will of the eternal creator, and as a sin, this act will be avenged. Hitler believed in the vengeance of God, the punishment of God upon sinful men. Man's effort to build up something that contradicts the iron logic of nature brings him into conflict with those principles to which he himself exclusively owes his own existence. By acting against the laws of nature, he prepares the way that leads to his ruin. Here it is plainly evident that Hitler associated nature with God that nature was a product of the creator. Therefore, the so-called laws of nature, which he intended to describe, must be the laws of the creator, the Christian God who commanded men not to commit miscegenation, but to maintain themselves kind after kind and not to commit fornication. As Paul of Tarsus had explained, Without law, there is no sin, and sin is discovered in the law. These are not pagan concepts, but they are Christian precepts. So, it is no mistake that once again, using Christian terminology and referring to the actual truth concerning original sin, Hitler said in Volume 1, Chapter 10 of Mein Kampf, that the sin against blood and race is the hereditary sin in this world, and it brings disaster on every nation that commits it. Writing elsewhere in that same chapter, where he was discussing the Weimar era scourge of immorality, prostitution, and the ensuing plague of syphilis and other diseases brought about by those things. Hitler said, but if for reasons of indolence or cowardice, this fight is not fought to a finish, we may imagine what conditions will be like 500 years hence. Little of God's image will be left in human nature except to mock the creator, like with a bunch of half-breed niggers, or a whole race of them. Similarly, and as another witness to his belief concerning the origins of the laws of nature, 
He wrote in volume 1, chapter 11 of Mein Kampf, that by neglecting the problem of preserving the racial foundations of our national life, the old empire abrogated the sole right which entitles a people to live on this planet. Nations that make mongrels of their people or allow their people to be turned into mongrels sin against the will of eternal providence and thus their overthrow at the hands of a stronger opponent cannot be looked upon as a wrong, but, on the contrary, as a restoration of justice. If a people refuses to guard and uphold the qualities with which it has been endowed by nature and which have their roots in the racial blood, then such a people has no right to complain over the loss of its earthly existence. So with that, there should be no doubt that in Hitler's mind, the laws of nature are the same as the will of eternal providence, which is also the will of the eternal creator. And therefore, there should be no doubt that Hitler was a Christian, a biblical Christian, and not a church boy Christian. Adolf Hitler was a true Christian who sought for Germans to live by the laws of the Christian God. Later, in volume 2, chapter 2 of Mein Kampf, Hitler condemned the churches for not maintaining the biblical laws against miscegenation which are found in the scriptures, where, after condemning certain utopians who sought to break down racial barriers. He said, how devoid of ideals and how ignoble is the whole contemporary system. The fact that the churches join in committing this sin against the image of God, even though they continue to emphasize the dignity of that image, is quite in keeping with their present activities. They talk about the spirit, but they allow man as the embodiment of the spirit to to degenerate to the proletarian level. And I imagine that proletarian there is a euphemism for nigger. Then they look on with amazement when they realize how small is the influence of the Christian faith in their own country. And how depraved and ungodly is this riffraff, which is physically degenerate and therefore morally degenerate also. To balance this state of affairs, they try to convert the Hottentots and the Zulus and the Kathirs and to bestow on them the blessings of the church. While our European people God be praised and thanked, are left to become the victims of moral depravity. The pious missionary goes out to Central Africa and establishes missionary stations for Negroes.
Hitler is speaking sarcastically, where he says, God be praised and thanked. The attitude of these pious missionaries. Finally, sound and healthy. Though primitive and backward, people will be transformed. Under the name of our higher civilization, into a motley of lazy and brutalized mongrels. And that's exactly what's happening. Of mongrels or bastards. The Christian scriptures state that a bastard or mongrel shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Some may object that this concept is found only in the Old Testament, but that is not true. In the letters of Paul of Tarsus, we read, that if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. The point being that the Adamic or Aryan children of God should learn from the consequences of their mistakes, which is their chastisement. But that for bastards, it doesn't really matter. Once again, of all Christians, only identity Christians understand this important and even crucial aspect of Christianity. If Hitler were a pagan, he would have had to defend his racism on pagan grounds, where he should not have used biblical language, references, and allegories. If Hitler were a Catholic-minded Christian, he should have stayed within the bounds of the catechism, where he would not have been able to defend his racism at all. There, he most likely may have been forced to argue on purely religious grounds. And according to Catholic dogmas, his racism itself would have been a sin. But if Hitler were a true Christian, one who accepts the laws of God in Christ, then his racism is Christian indeed. Once again, only identity Christians can understand these things as the churches have never properly upheld them, being universal in their nature from the days of Constantine and even earlier from the time that the Judaizers prevailed when true Christianity was persecuted in the first century. However, speaking of Hottentots, Zulus, and Kathirs, while the churches assume that these fall under the biblical concept of man, identity Christians protest that assumption. For us, the writings of Paul of Tarsus, as well as those of the Old Testament, define man as the Adamic man, and Paul equated the terms Adam and Anthropus, or man, in Romans chapter 5. Likewise, in Mein Kampf, it is evident that Hitler made a very similar correlation, that only the white man is properly man. This is found in volume 1, chapter 11 of Mein Kampf.
where we first read, all that we admire in the world today is its science, its art, its technical developments and discoveries are the products of the creative activities of a few peoples, and it may be true that their first beginnings must be attributed to one race. The maintenance of civilization is wholly dependent on such peoples. Should they perish, all that makes this earth beautiful will descend with them into the grave. Then, a little further on, it would be futile to attempt to discuss the question as to what race or races were the original standard bearers of human culture and were thereby the real founders of all that we understand by the word humanity. It is much simpler to deal with this question insofar as it relates to the present time. Here the answer is simple and clear. Every manifestation of human culture, every product of art, science, and technical skill, which we see before our very eyes today, is almost exclusively the product of the Aryan creative power. This very fact fully justifies the conclusion that it was the Aryan alone who founded a superior type of humanity. Therefore, he represents the archetype of what we understand by the term man. He is the Prometheus of mankind, from whose shining brow the divine spark of genius has at all times flashed forth, always kindling anew that fire which, in the form of knowledge, illuminated the dark night by drawing aside the veil of mystery, and thus showing man how to rise and become master over all the other beings on the earth. Should he be forced to disappear, a profound darkness will descend on the earth, Within a few thousand years, human culture will vanish and the world will become a desert. Now, this one pagan analogy to Prometheus does not make Hitler a pagan, but rather he only uses an illustration from ancient literature to make an apt example. If the churches had maintained the Enoch literature, we would find that even the story of Prometheus, which we know from Hesiod and Aeschylus, Greek writers of the 7th and 5th centuries BC, has much older parallels in what the apostles themselves had considered to be Christian scriptures. However, in Enoch and in those same Christian scriptures, the Adamic man from whom we can trace the Aryan race in history and archaeology, is indeed the highest creature of God's creation. But Hitler was not inaccurate to state, from a more general point of view, that it would be futile to attempt to discuss the question as to what race or races were the original standard bearers of human culture. The Christian scriptures only inform us that so-called fallen angels were here on earth before Adam, and that the Adamic man was to supplant that fallen race. Once again, the churches do not properly teach these things, as the consequences are not amenable to the political objectives of the church, even from the time of its founding.
Adam's commission being to subdue the planet and all of its creatures, Hitler instinctively understood that the German people had at least a share in that assignment. So he wrote in volume two, chapter two of Mein Kampf, he who talks of the German people as having a mission to fulfill on this earth must know that this cannot be fulfilled except by the building up of a state whose highest purpose is to preserve and promote those nobler elements of our race and of the whole of mankind which have remained unimpaired, meaning not yet bastardized. Thus, for the first time, a high inner purpose is accredited to the state. In face of the ridiculous phrase that the state should do no more than act as a guardian of public order and tranquility, the Jewish idea, so that everybody can peacefully dupe everybody else. It is given a very high mission, indeed, to preserve and encourage the highest type of humanity, which a beneficent creator has bestowed on this earth. In the pagan Babylonian creation myth, the world and everything in it was formed by a giant serpent out of a lake of chaos. That may be true for all the other races, not for the Adamic or Aryan race. In the Norse creation myth, a giant cow emerged from the frost. Nobody explains where the hell the cow came from. And in turn, the cow licked the frost and freed the first man from the ice. But giants were also present, which had grown from the frost when heat met with ice. So while there are parallels to the Mesopotamian myths, the pagan myths in turn also have parallels to the Hebrew Genesis account. And that is not without coincidence. But the creation described by the Hebrew scriptures, which are the Christian scriptures, was the purposeful and orderly act of a beneficent God, a creator who remained beneficent to man so long as man remained obedient to a few simple laws. Adolf Hitler's view of both law and creation was one which was based on Christian scriptures and certainly not on any pagan literature or comic book fantasies. The Jewish views of evolution from some imaginary primordial ooze, to quote the Jew Carl Sagan, reflect the ancient pagan creation myths, which all stand contrary to the creator God of the Christian Bible, to which Adolf Hitler had frequently referred. So making another biblical analogy in relation to his concept of the ideal Christian nation and discussing how to resolve the subversion of German society, Hitler said in Volume 1, Chapter 12 of Mein Kampf that poison, meaning the Jews, can be overcome only by a counter-poison and only the supine bourgeois mind 
could think that the kingdom of heaven can be attained by a compromise. By his own profession, Hitler wanted to build the kingdom of heaven in Germany without consideration for Midgard or Valhalla. Concerning that aspiration, he was unapologetic, just as he had understood that early Christianity was also unapologetic in the way that it dealt with the decadence of paganism. In this regard, he wrote in Volume 2, Chapter 5 of Mein Kampf, subtitled Walton Schong and Organization, that Christianity was not content with erecting an altar of its own. It had first to destroy the pagan altars. It was only in virtue of this passionate intolerance that an apodictic faith could grow up. And intolerance is an indispensable condition for the growth of such a faith. Saying this, Hitler was explaining the need that if it is to survive, then a Weltanschauung is intolerant and cannot permit another to exist side by side with it. It can never allow the previous state of affairs to continue in existence by its side. Hitler, not actually being a student of antiquity, went on to make what I believe is a serious mistake, where he had next written. It may be objected here that in these phenomena, which we find throughout the history of the world, we have to recognize mostly a specifically Jewish mode of thought, and that such fanaticism and intolerance are typical symptoms of Jewish mentality. And I would say that that is wrong. And I will explain why. That may be a thousandfold true. And it is a fact deeply to be regretted. It's not really a symptom of Jewish mentality. It's a symptom of pagan mentality as well, as I shall demonstrate. The appearance of intolerance and fanaticism in the history of mankind, may be deeply regrettable, and it may be looked upon as foreign to human nature. But the fact does not change conditions as they exist today. The men who wish to liberate our German nation from the conditions in which it now exists cannot cudgel their brains without thinking how excellent it would be if this or that had never arisen. They must strive to find ways and means of abolishing what actually exists, which we have seen Hitler had before warned against. A philosophy of life which is inspired by an infernal spirit of intolerance can only be set aside by a doctrine that is advanced in an equally ardent spirit and fought for with as determined a will and which is itself a new idea, pure and absolutely true. Each one of us, and here he is wrong as well, but it's related to the previous errant statement. 
Each one of us today may regret the fact that the advent of Christianity was the first occasion on which spiritual terror was introduced into the much freer ancient world. Now, that that statement is dead wrong, and I will explain why. But the fact cannot be denied that ever since then, the world is pervaded and dominated by this time of coercion and that violence is broken only by violence and terror by terror. Only then can a new regime be created by means of constructive work. Political parties are prone to enter compromises, but a Weltanschauung never does this. A worldview, a firm, solid worldview based on a firm foundation never compromises. A political party is inclined to adjust its teachings with a view to meeting those of its opponents. But a Weltanschauung proclaims its own infallibility. Now, I will prove why Hitler was wrong where he said that the advent of Christianity was the first occasion on which spiritual terror was introduced into the much freer ancient world. And he was wrong where he said that intolerance was specifically a Jewish mode of thought. We know how the Jews act. We understand that they're intolerant, but Jews don't care about other religions. They're only intolerant of you holding anything that the Jews do not possess. In the 19th dynasty of ancient Egypt, at least 14 centuries before the dawn of Christianity, we read the following account in the legend of the destruction of mankind, a myth which was preserved in hieroglyphic inscriptions of Pharaoh Seti I. When Ra entered the great temple, the gods made obeisance to him and took up their positions on each side of him and informed him that they awaited his words. Addressing Nu, the personification of the world ocean, Ra bade them to take notice of the fact that the men and women whom his eye had created were murmuring against him. He then asked them to consider the matter and to devise a plan of action for him, for he was unwilling to slay the rebels without hearing what his gods had to say. In reply, the gods advised Ra to send forth his eye to destroy the blasphemers, for there was no eye on earth that could resist it, especially when it took the form of the goddess Hathor. Ra accepted their advice and sent forth his eye in the form of Hathor to destroy them. So we have a woman who is destroying these religious rebels. That's paganism and that's feminism and that's intolerance. Come on. And though the rebels had fled to the mountains in fear, the eye pursued them and overtook them, and destroyed them. Evidently, Hitler was not aware that ancient pagan religions were not free, but were often enforced by ancient states. 
and were just as often far more intolerant than Christianity ever was. The pagan Roman religious calendar governed the civic and economic life of the people who could not buy or sell on holy days, who were forced to make certain sacrifices to the gods, and also to the emperors themselves as signs of allegiance. Famously, around 400 BC, Socrates was executed for corrupting the minds of Athenian youth with his philosophy for his rejection of the gods of Athens. In ancient Mesopotamia, religious worship of the gods of various states was compulsory. There was no liberty in organized ancient paganism. In chapter 16 of the book of Acts, we see the statement of Roman men that the apostles were teaching customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. It is certainly evident in the pages of Livy and Tacitus that this is true, that Roman religion was imposed by law upon its citizens, just as the Egyptian level, the Egyptian legend found on the tomb of a pharaoh also suggests that blasphemers of the Egyptian gods or Egyptians who would not submit to them would also be killed. So Hitler was certainly wrong in that aspect of his assessment of early Christianity. However, his criticism is not necessarily a criticism of Christianity itself, as we have seen elsewhere, that on many occasions in that same book, Hitler defended Christianity. Rather, it was a criticism of how men promulgated Christianity, and Christ cannot be blamed for that promulgation in that manner, necessarily. Intolerance. Intolerance is often adopted as a necessity out of love for and a care to preserve one's own race and nation. Hitler had also explained here that it is the Jew who is inherently intolerant and desires to infiltrate and destroy other races. But out of love for his people, Hitler also practiced that same intolerance to a great degree. It is also clear from the ancient histories that Europe had no defense against the Jews until it became Christian. The Jews lived rather well among pagan Romans, pagan Greeks, and pagan Goths and Iberians until Christianity revealed their perfidy and their treacherous behavior. In the ancient world, the Canaanites and Edomites, the ancestors of the Jews, were the chief moneylenders and panderers just as they are now. For identity Christians, Hitler described the struggle of man as it is depicted in Genesis 
But in modern terms, where he said in volume two, chapter two of Mein Kampf, that one thing is certain. Our world is facing a great revolution. The only question is whether the outcome will be propitious for the Aryan portion of mankind or whether the everlasting Jew will profit by it. However, in many other places in that same book, Hitler used Christian terminology to illustrate the inherent nature of the Jews. What follows is a short list of such occasions. In volume one, chapter five, subtitled The World War, where he described Germany after the First World War, the same circumstances which existed in the America of the 1950s at the hands of the same Jews. And he wrote, the time seemed to have arrived for proceeding against the whole Jewish gang of public pests. While the flower of the nation's manhood was dying at the front, there was time enough at home, at least, to exterminate this vermin. But instead of doing so, His Majesty the Kaiser held out his hand to these hoary criminals, thus assuring them his protection and allowing them to regain their mental composure. And so the viper could begin his work again, this time, however, more carefully than before, but still more destructively. While honest people dreamt of reconciliation, these perjured criminals were making preparations for a revolution. Then, in Volume 1, Chapter 10, Why the Second Reich Collapsed, the defense put up by the government in those days against a mainly Jew-controlled press that was slowly corrupting the nation followed no definite line of action. It had no determination behind it, and above all, no fixed objective whatsoever in view. This is where official understanding of the situation completely failed, both in estimating the importance of the struggle, choosing the means, and deciding on a definite plan. They merely tinkered with the problem. Occasionally, when bitten, they imprisoned one or another journalistic viper, for a few weeks or months, but the whole poisonous brood was allowed to carry on in peace. Then a little further on in that same chapter. Certainly in days to come, the Jews will raise a tremendous cry throughout their newspapers. Once a hand is laid on their favorite nest, once a move is made to put an end to this scandalous press, and once this instrument which shapes public opinion, is brought under state control and no longer left in the hands of aliens and enemies of the people. I am certain that this will be easier for us than it was for our fathers. The scream of the 12-inch shrapnel is more penetrating than the hiss from a thousand Jewish newspaper vipers. Therefore, let them go on with their hissing. Like John the Baptist and Jesus Christ, Hitler often referred to Jews as vipers. And in volume two, chapter two, chapter six, I'm sorry, of Mein Kampf, he also referred to them as wolves. 
another term for Jews used in the Christian New Testament and described the German bourgeois as being in league with them. The disruptive work done by the Marxists and the poisonous propaganda of the external enemy, the Jews, had robbed these people of their reason, and no one, and one had no right to complain. For the guilt on this side was enormous. What had the German bourgeois done to call a halt to this terrible campaign of disintegration, to oppose it and open a way to a recognition of the truth by giving a better and more thorough explanation of the situation than that of the Marxists? Nothing. Nothing. At that time, I never saw those who are now the great apostles of the people. Perhaps they spoke to select groups at tea parties of their own little coteries. But there, where they should have been, where the wolves were at work, they never risked their appearance unless it gave them the opportunity of yelling in concert with the wolves. In the Christianian New Testament, I'm sorry, in the Christian New Testament, I'm so used to saying that phrase, the Jews are collectively referred to as Satan or the adversary on frequent occasion. Hitler made that same exact analogy of the Jews in Volume 1, Chapter 11 of Mein Kampf, titled, race and people. It was due to the German princes that the German nation could not succeed in definitely freeing itself from the Jewish peril. Unfortunately, the situation did not change at a later period. The princes finally received the reward which they had a thousandfold deserved for all the crimes committed by them against their own people. They had allied themselves with Satan and later on discovered that they were in Satan's embrace. Describing those same bourgeois that were singing in concert with the wolves. Those German, that German nobility that had allied itself with the Jews. Of course, identity Christians see the Jews collectively as Satan in that same manner. Later in that same chapter, Hitler describes a situation in Germany, which could also describe America in the 1960s, at which Jews were also, once again, at the vanguard. Hitler writes, by presenting his doctrine as part and parcel of a just revindication of social rights, same thing he did for niggers here in America, the Jew propagated the doctrine all the more effectively, but at the same time, he provoked the opposition of decent people who refused to admit these demands, which, because of the form and pseudo-philosophical trimmings in which they are presented, seemed fundamentally unjust and impossible for realization. For, under the cloak of purely social concepts, there are hidden aims which are of a satanic character. These aims are even expounded in the open with the clarity of unlimited impudence. 
This Marxist doctrine is an individual mixture of human reason and human absurdity. But the combination is arranged in such a way that only the absurd part of it could ever be put into practice, but never the reasonable part of it. By categorically repudiating the personal worth of the individual and also the nation and its racial constituent, this doctrine destroys the fundamental basis of all civilization. For civilization essentially depends on these very factors. Such is the true essence of the Marxist Weltanschauung, so far as the word Weltanschauung can be applied at all to this phantom arising from a criminal brain. The destruction of the concept of personality and of race resume, removes, I'm sorry, removes the chief obstacle which barred the way to domination of the social body, but it's by its inferior elements, which are the Jews. Then a little further on in the same chapter, he will stop at nothing. His utterly low down conduct is so appalling that one really cannot be surprised if in the imagination of our people the Jew is pictured as the incarnation of Satan and the symbol of evil. And actually, Hitler was awfully close. The Jew is Satan. Then, a little further on still, Hitler described the Jewish lust for white women and the motivation behind it which identity Christians understand is paralleled in Genesis chapters 3, 6, and elsewhere later in Scripture. The black-haired Jewish youth lies in wait for hours on end, satanically, right out of Genesis chapter 3, satanically glaring at and spying on the unsuspicious girl whom he plans to seduce adulterating her blood and removing her from the bosom of her own people. The Jew uses every possible means to undermine the racial foundations of a subjugated people. In his systematic efforts to ruin girls and women, he strives to break down the last barriers of discrimination between him and other peoples. The Jews were responsible for bringing Negroes into the Rhineland and everywhere else with the ultimate idea of bastardizing the white race, which they hate, and thus lowering its cultural and political level so that the Jew might dominate. For as long as the people remain racially pure and are conscious of the treasure of their blood, they can never be overcome by the Jew. Never in this world can the Jew become master of any people except a bastardized people. That is why the Jew systematically endeavors to lower the racial quality of a people by permanently adulterating the blood of the individuals who make up that people. Consistently associating the Jews with Satan 
Adolf Hitler was essentially describing the nature of the Jew from a Christian perspective, using Christian language and relating the fact that the Jewish Satan was continuing the very same agenda in the promotion of race mixing, which is first found in the Garden of Eden, a phenomenon which Hitler also explained was perpetuated by the same Jew. Then, using Christian terminology to describe them as vipers or serpents, he was identifying them with the serpent of Genesis, just as Christ himself had done. This is not paganism, which does not protest any of these things, but in fact, it is positive Christianity. In contrast, the National Socialist concept of social justice was reflected in a basic application of the Christian demand of love for one's own brethren. This is characterized in the implementation of National Socialist policy. The following quote is from a book, a booklet, Germany Speaks, published in the late 1930s. It was written by 21 leading members of the party and state with a preface by Joachim von Ribbentrop, Reich Minister for Foreign Affairs. This introduction is by Adolf Hitler himself. And it says, Germany is making every effort in reconciling the apparently conflicting social interests which threaten the integral unity of all nations, to give her people the happiness of a community held together in brotherly fashion, to assist those in poorer circumstances, and to further all good and healthy instincts for the material and personal well-being of the people as a whole. With the same spirit which governs our actions at home, we wish to establish our relations abroad. We believe that the tasks which Providence, not Odin, Providence has set us all, if we are to dwell amicably side by side on this earth, we must be solved in the same spirit. We wish, therefore, to cooperate sincerely and confidently with all nations and states who share these sentiments and to put our earnest striving into practice. And that was written to the Diplomatic Corps, January 11th, 1938. In incidental references throughout his writing, Hitler's terminology consistently betrays a completely Christian Weltanschauung. Here we shall provide just a few examples. Speaking of the plague of prostitution and the devaluation of the institution of marriage in Volume 1, Chapter 10 of Mein Kampf, Why the Second Reich Collapsed, for the moral havoc resulting from this prostitution would be sufficient to bring about the destruction of the nation. Slowly but surely, this Judaizing of our spiritual life and mammonizing of our natural instinct for procreation will sooner or later work havoc with our whole posterity. 
For instead of strong, healthy children, blessed with natural feelings, we shall see miserable specimens of humanity resulting from economic calculation. For economic considerations are becoming more and more the foundations of marriage and the sole preliminary condition of it. And love looks for an outlet elsewhere. Then further on in the same chapter, the attitude towards this one vital problem in pre-war Germany was most regrettable. What measures were undertaken to arrest the infection of our youth in large cities? What was done to put an end to the contamination and mammonization of sexual life among us? What was done to fight the resulting spread of syphilis throughout the whole of our national life? The reply to this question can be best illustrated by showing what should have been done. And here we must ask, where is the mammonizing of sexual life even a concern in pagan literature? When are pagans concerned of marriage as an institution, prostitution as a plague, or of charity as a virtue? The sanctity of wife seems only to have been a matter of honor to a man who had the capacity to defend her. But it was never a moral issue before God. Not only Hitler's language, but his moral standards were also entirely Christian. So he says again in that same chapter where he describes the apathy of the people in regard to the prevailing immorality. There are many ways of becoming resigned to this unpleasant and terrible fact. Many people go about seeing nothing, or to be more correct, not wanting to see anything. This is by far the simplest and cheapest attitude to adopt. Others cover themselves in the sacred mantle of prudery, as ridiculous as it is false. They describe the whole condition of affairs as sinful and are profoundly indignant when brought face to face with the victim. They close their eyes in reverent abhorrence to this godless scourge and pray to the Almighty that he, if possible after their own death, may rain down fire and brimstone as on Sodom and Gomorrah, and so once again make an outstanding example of this shameless section of humanity. Finally, there are those who are well aware of the terrible results which this scourge will and must bring about, but they merely shrug their shoulders, fully convinced of their inability to undertake anything against this peril. Hence, manners are allowed to take their own course. Hitler despised the false piety of most church-going Christians. But he was not simply giving an occasional mention of Christianity in order to gratify those same supposed Christians. His words betray the fact that he could never simply gratify them on those terms. All of these references clearly refute the notion that any mention by Hitler of God or Christ was merely a gratuitous expression in order to appeal or appease to 
appeal to or appease German Christians. Hitler himself was indeed a Christian, and a far greater Christian than any church-going German of his own time. Christianity was resolutely diffused into Hitler's political philosophy, into his Weltanschauung, and is evident in a great majority of his thoughts. He was a true Christian, unlike the churchgoers who behave with piety, but have no real concept as to what Christianity is actually about. We see innocent statements betraying Hitler's literary literary influences. For instance, in Volume 1, Chapter 3 of Mein Kampf, if Peter be boss today, then why not Paul tomorrow? Again, later in that same chapter, we thank God for the that the inner spirit of our German democracy will of itself prevent the chance careerist, who may be intellectually worthless and a moral twister, from coming by devious ways to a position in which he may govern his fellow citizens. And again, to speak before such a forum signifies casting pearls before certain animals. And of course, this is a citation from Christ, found at Matthew chapter 7. Then in volume 1, chapter 7 of Mein Kampf, we read where Hitler recounts some of his own wartime experiences. It was my luck that I was able to take part in the first two offensives and in the final offensive. These have left on me the most stupendous impressions of my life. Stupendous, because now, for the last time, the struggle lost its defensive character and assumed the character of an offensive, just as it was in 1914. A sigh of relief went up from the German trenches and dugouts when finally, after three years of endurance in that inferno, the day for the settling of accounts had come. Once again, the lusty cheering of victorious battalions was heard as they hung the last crowns of the immortal laurel on the standards which they consecrated to victory. Once again, the strains of patriotic song soared upwards to the heavens above the endless columns of marching troops, and for the last time, the Lord smiled on his ungrateful children. In Volume 1, Chapter 12 of Mein Kampf, Hitler made a reference to the proverbial 30 pieces of silver, using as an allegory a biblical concept found in Zechariah Chapter 12, Chapter 11, and Matthew Chapters 26 and 27. In our final example, in the opening paragraph of Volume 2, Chapter 7 of Mein Kampf, Hitler decried the effectiveness of the meetings of the bourgeois political parties and lamented the futility which he felt by saying, for my own part, I must frankly admit that under such circumstances, I could not find life worth living. And indeed, I should no longer wish to be a German. But thank God, all this is impossible. 
And so it is not surprising that the sane and unspoiled masses shun these bourgeois mass meetings as the devil shuns holy water. Without a doubt, Adolf Hitler was a true Christian, even if he failed in the 20th century. In 20th century Germany, ultimately, Christ himself will not fail, and Hitler will be vindicated. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.